You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Paradise is a place or a state of complete happiness. It's a place of bliss. It's a region of, and I got this from the old 1800s dictionary, supreme felicity or delight. And so I had to remind myself by looking up, what is felicity? Well, felicity is intense happiness. Bliss, perfect joy, perfect happiness. Nobody who's ever gone to heaven ever wants to come back to earth. The joy and happiness that awaits you in heaven is unfathomable. The day you arrive will be a day of great celebration and new understanding. It's then that the meaning of it all will truly come to your grasp. Today, Pastor Danny teaches you what the Bible says about heaven. He helps you understand the great future that you'll have to look forward to if Jesus is your savior. As you come to understand heaven, you'll realize the need to share it with others so that they don't miss out on this incredible future. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Philippians chapter 1 as he continues his message, An Unbelievable Future, An Unbeatable Attitude. The first part is concluded, but he doesn't die physically. God takes him to heaven. The second part, the Bible says Elijah is going to come back before the great day of the Lord. And it appears in Revelation, he's one of the two witnesses. And they end up, when their ministry is complete, being killed. They die martyrs' deaths. Either way, it's fascinating how Elijah went to heaven. Second Corinthians Chapter or Second Kings, chapter two, and you go down to verse eleven. As they, Elijah and Elisha, his servant, who would take over his prophetic ministry after he's gone, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Are you guys here? Does that not excite you? When I put those two scriptures together, to me, they are tremendous clues that when the believer departs this body, and it's clear that now to be absent from the body is not to go to Abraham's bosom. Jesus in his spirit went there after his sacrifice on the cross. He unlocked the keys to death and Sheol, and he led all those who died in faith into the very presence of the Father. And so now you go but you don't go down to Abraham's bosom, but you still go. And now instead of the the trip being down, now it's up. And it appears to be angelic transportation provided. Back to the main point. Paul has a desire to depart. What he's saying is, 
I'd rather die because I know where I'm headed. I'm going when I leave this body to be with the Lord. And it's better by far. Would you believe some Christians don't believe that? I've talked to Christians over the years. I saw talk to some recently. They don't want to go right now. Some for the right reason, which we'll get to in a minute. But a lot of them for the wrong reason. In my study, I went back through highlights from reading not too long ago, Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. I enjoyed it the first time. I enjoyed going back and looking at the things I highlighted, and I highlighted quite a bit. For example, he starts out in his introduction. The sense that we will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Australian aborigines pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. The early Finns thought it was an island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, and Polynesians believed that they went to the sun or the moon after death. Native Americans believed that in the afterlife, their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. The Gilgamesh epic in ancient Babylonian legend refers to a resting place of heroes and hence at a tree of life. In the pyramids of Egypt, get this, the embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them as guides to the future world. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic in the Elysian fields while their horses grazed nearby. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, the day thou fearest as the last is the birthday of eternity. Although these depictions of the afterlife differ, the unifying testimony of the human heart throughout history is belief in life after death. Anthropological evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all there is. I wrote in, after that paragraph, Ecclesiastes 3.11. The reason that every culture has an innate sense that there's an afterlife is because God put that in every human being. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he said eternity in the heart of man. That's why every single human being knows when I die, it's not the end. It's actually just the beginning of eternity. Here's the sad thing. Randy says in his book on page six, I've spoken about heaven at churches and conferences. I've written about heaven and taught a seminary course entitled The Theology of Heaven. There's a great deal I don't know, but one thing I do know is what people think about heaven. And frankly, I'm alarmed. He quotes a man named John Eldridge who did another work called The Journey of Desire. And here's what John Eldridge says. Nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that heaven is an unending church service. That's depressing. We settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our hearts sink, forever and ever. That's it. That's the good news. And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. We lose heart, and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. Most in our church are old enough to remember a cartoon series. A guy named Gary Larson did it. It was called The Far Side. Anybody remember The Far Side comics? Even those that don't. Let me give you 
one of the Far Side comics in which Gary Larson depicted a common misconception of what heaven is. In it, a man with angel wings and a halo sits on a cloud doing nothing with no one nearby. He has an expression of someone marooned on a desert island with absolutely nothing to do. A caption shows his inner thoughts. Wish I'd brought a magazine. Randy Alcorn says, Satan need not convince us that heaven does not exist. He need only convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unearthly existence. If we believe that lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. We'll set our minds on this life and not the next, and we won't won't be motivated to share our faith. We envision what we imagine. I'm an old rock and roller. Most of you know that. I love music. I study rock and roll history. I love some of the music, especially of my era. I loved the Beatles. In every era of their music growth, I loved them. I loved it when they broke off and did their own thing. I listened to all four of them and the songs they put out. In my study for this message, I couldn't help but I thought of John Lennon's song, Imagine. And what John Lennon wanted and worked for during the last days of his life and what a tragedy that his life was taken the way it was. But he wrote a song about his dream. It wasn't heaven, the biblical heaven, but for him it was. You might know the song. Here are some of the words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. Imagine all the people sharing all the world, a brotherhood of man. I love that song for its musical appeal. I dislike that song for its fallacy and wrong imagination. It's not based on truth. You know what I did? I spent hours. I spent hours. I I know you don't appreciate it, but I did it anyway. (laughs) In preparing for this message, and I had note after note after note because I prayed and I said, Lord, Lord, I'm talking to a lot of people who've been listening to me as a pastor for years and years, and I've, I'm talking to people who, who know about heaven. You know the truth. For the most of us, we do, and we believe it. I said, Lord, how do I make it fresh? How do I make it so appealing that we leave church and leave the meeting so longing for heaven? But as I put note after note and scripture after scripture, I realized if I go through all the notes that I've put down, we're going to be here for a very, very long time. And so I began to delete and whittled it down. And I'm going to give you the final of what I came up with. I did not delete Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, because it says it in just one single verse. Here it is. Revelation chapter two, verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The paradise of God. Jesus turned to the thief on the cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to the thief and he said, Today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. 
you know your Bible at all, it starts off, Genesis chapter 1, in paradise. That was God's intention. That's still God's intention. And after deleting one note after another, here's what you're left with. Listen, here's what it is. It's paradise. Paradise is a place or a state of complete happiness. It's a place of bliss. It's a region of, and I got this from the old 1800s dictionary, supreme felicity or delight. And so I had to remind myself by looking up, what is felicity? Well, felicity is intense happiness, bliss, perfect joy, perfect happiness. Nobody who's ever gone to heaven ever wants to come back to earth. For the note takers, you can write down Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. It talks about the day when God's going to create new heavens and a new earth. And it says in that day, those that are privileged to live in that kind of world, here's what it says. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Some have foolishly said what that means is God wipes out our memory. If God wipes out our memory, you won't know why you're there. You'll forget that Jesus is the Savior that made it all possible. No, 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 no. He doesn't wipe out our memory. There's another scripture that helps us understand. It's the one that tells us about what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. And while he's there, he is transfigured before them. And for just a few moments, they have a glorious experience, unlike they've ever had on earth. It's a heavenly experience. So much so that Peter, you got to love Peter. He says, it's so good to be here. Let's build some houses. Let's move here. He forgot about his wife. He forgot about the kids. He forgot about everybody and everything down in the valley. He just wanted to stay there. Who wouldn't? He experienced in those few moments paradise. And he just wanted to stay there. Every romantic desire fulfilled. No more broken relationships. No more divorce. No more thorns with the roses. No more flies or mosquitoes at cookouts. No more sweat and work. Moss and closets. Thieves. Feelings of depression. Hunger. Homelessness. COVID-19. Masked. None. No more fear. No more sickness. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. And let me clue you in. You ain't sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Thank you, Randy, for the book and the wonderful insight. I mean, I don't have time to read you everything I'd like to read you from this book. If we can't imagine our present earth without rivers, mountains, trees, and flowers, then why would we try to imagine the new earth without these features? We wouldn't expect a non-earth to have mountains and rivers, but God doesn't promise us a non-earth. He promises us a new earth. If the word earth in this phrase means anything, it means we can expect to find earthly things there. Atmosphere, mountains, water, trees, people, houses, cities, buildings, streets. He says the biblical doctrine of the new earth implies something startling. That if we want to know what the ultimate heaven, our eternal home will be like, the best place to start is by looking around us. The idea of the new earth as a physical place isn't an invention of short-sighted human imagination. Rather, it's the invention of a transcendent God who made physical human beings to live in a physical earth and who chose to become a man himself on that same earth. He did this that he might redeem mankind and earth. Why? 
in order to glorify himself and enjoy forever the company of men and women in a world he's made for us. I wrote down underneath that paragraph, John chapter 14, verse 2, when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me to be where I am. Are you guys here? That's point one of message two. And you'll be encouraged to know it's 95 or 96% of message number two. Paul had a desire to depart and be with Christ. He tells us in one of the letters to the Corinthians that sometime before, whether in the body or out of the body, he says, I don't know. He talks about his experience of being caught up to the third heaven. And he tells us, I was caught up to paradise. He had what you might call an unfair advantage. He had already seen it firsthand. He had already been there. I think that's one of the reasons he says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But despite his desire to depart, he had a commitment to stay. And he did for a period of time. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, the time for his departure did come. And he says, the time for my departure is at hand. He knew he was going to die now. And he looked so forward to it. C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you know that name. He was a great theologian. He's with the Lord now. But one of the things C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Very interesting. I've been chewing on that thought. Jonathan Edwards, another giant of the faith from years ago, he's also with the Lord. But Jonathan Edwards made these resolutions in his early Christian life, in his early 20s. One of the resolutions for his life, he said, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. And what he means by that is what I do in this life will determine the level of my joy in the next one. Point number three, and we're almost done. When you put together the two things that Paul says, his desire to depart, which is better by far, but it's more needful for me to remain, and you marry those two together, he had an unbeatable perspective in life. His willingness to remain was because he knew that every trial that a believer goes through has a divine purpose. I know some Christians in our church right now going through trials and they don't understand why. I know some Christians right now that don't understand why God continues to leave them here. One of them is my friend over on the other coast, Pastor Peter Lord, who came here to speak when he was 89, 89 years old. Now he's 90. Since his wife died a few years ago, he longs to be with Jesus and to be re reunited with her. He's ready to go. He's been ready to go for some time. I'm one of the reasons God hasn't taken him yet because he so encourages me in my ministry. Every trial has a divine purpose. Paul also knew that nothing could rob him of his relationship with Christ. If I had more time, I'd turn to Romans 8. I'm not going to do that. But he talks about all these things, good and bad. And he says, none of these things can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And we are more than conquerors. This is Paul, the prisoner, the man who suffered everywhere he went for Christ and for the gospel. Paul's third perspective brings us right back to the beginning. He understood that every trial has a divine purpose. 
He knew nothing could rob him of his relationship with Christ, and he knew where he was headed. My grandmother, the last few years of her life, she was bedridden. She had to have somebody else bathe her. She had somebody else change her clothes. She had to have somebody else feed her. She was such a woman of faith. I, I, I did not understand. There were days, there were times that went by, and I did not understand why God didn't just take her home. We were praying, God, just take her home. And I didn't understand until she was gone. And as I stand here closing this message, I understand. And Grandma, I don't know if you can hear me, but thank you for being willing to stay. Because in those years where she was bedridden and she could do nothing on her own and you wondered why in the world God didn't just take her home, God left her for people like me because she showed me. She showed me what real Christianity was like. She showed me what it was to suffer and never complain. She never complained, never hurt her once. She showed me what it was to have hope in the midst of a hopeless situation, humanly speaking. She showed me what it was to reach her arms around me, even though she physically couldn't do it. I felt it every time I walked in the bedroom. I felt the love of Christ through her life to the very bitter end. I thank God for saints like my grandmother. When you don't understand, I know some others in our church and they're going through some things and they're wondering, why in the world does God leave me here? You may not be able to answer it this side of heaven, but I'll tell you what, my grandmother, I look back now and I know why God didn't take her sooner. He left her because he left a witness. I know what time it is, but I got one last story. In one it was 1952, a young woman named Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean her intention was to swim from Catalina Island to the mainland shore of California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather in Catalina was foggy. It was chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. She swam for 15 hours, and then she begged for them to take her into a boat. Her mother in a boat alongside tried to encourage her, honey, you're so close, you're almost there. But finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming, and they took her into the boat. It was only after she got in the boat she discovered the shore was less than a mile away. At a news conference the next day, Florence Chadwick said, and I quote, all I could see was the fog. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I pray in my feeble attempt to communicate the scriptures of Philippians chapter 1. You get at least somewhat of a glimpse. We ain't sitting on a cloud playing a harp. We're headed for paradise. And while you long to go and you long to be there, the commitment is you stay until the job's done. And only God decides when that's done. Only God decides. When is the mission completed? When is my ministry over here? And so I say to pastors, to Christian workers, to moms, dads, sons, daughters, grandfathers, and grandmothers, keep the faith until the end. 
you'll leave a witness. It'll make a difference you may not know about until heaven. Thanks for joining us today to study the books of the New Testament with Pastor Danny Hodges, right here on The Living Word. You can check out more of Pastor Danny's teachings through the Bible by going to our website, ccfstpete.church. Just look under the Resources tab and click on Teachings. We encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well to stay up to date on the latest teachings and videos. Feel free to share them with your friends and family. If you're in the St. Petersburg area, we'd love to meet you in person. Join us for our weekly church services at Calvary Chapel Fellowship. We meet on Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. We're also live streaming our services for those who are at home or live further away. We look forward to worshiping with you. Find out more on our website. Once more, that's ccfstpete.church. As Pastor Danny continues this series, New Testament Highlights, be reminded that all these books provide a glimpse into God's heart for every person. His word is like a lighthouse, showing the way for lost ships at sea. Each person is a lost ship, floundering in the dark waters until they see that beam of light that directs them back to land. Throughout scripture, Jesus is that beam of light, lighting the path to safety. Tune in next time to hear more from Pastor Danny as he teaches in the New Testament right here on The Living Word. 